Section 69 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Beata von Zutner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 16, Part 4. Forebodings? No, there were none. If there had been, Paris would not have made on me the cheerful impression of promised pleasure which it did on one sunny afternoon of March 1870 on our arrival. One knows now what horrors were brooding over that city after a very short interval, but not the faintest anticipation of trouble arose in my mind. We had already hired beforehand, through the agent, John Arthur, the same little palace in which we had lived last year, and at its door was waiting for us our maitre d'hôtel of the previous year. As we drove across the Champs-Élysées to reach our dwelling, it was just the hour for the bois, and several of our old acquaintances met us and exchanged joyful recognitions. The numerous little barrows of violets which were dragged about the streets of Paris that year filled the air with a promise of spring. The sunbeams were sparkling and playing in rainbows on the fountains of the Rond-Point, making little reflections on the carriage lamps and the harness of the many carriages. Amongst others, the beautiful Empress was driving in a carriage harnessed à la Domon. She passed us, and, recognizing me, made a gesture of salutation. There are some special pictures or scenes which photograph or phonograph themselves in our memory, along with the feelings that accompany them, and some of the words that are spoken at them. This Paris is truly lovely, cried Frederick at this point, and my feeling was a childish self-congratulation on the coming treat. Had I known what was coming to me and to this whole city, now bathed in splendor and rejoicing. This time we abstained from throwing ourselves, as we had done the year before, into the whirlpool of worldly amusements. We announced that we would not accept any dancing invitations, and kept ourselves apart from the great receptions. Even the theatre we did not visit so often, only when some piece made a great impression. And so it came about that we spent most evenings at home alone or in the society of a few friends. As to our plans with regard to the idea of the emperor about disarmament, we got on but badly with them. Napoleon III had not indeed given up his idea altogether, but the present time, it was said, was not at all suited for carrying it out. In the circle around the throne a conviction had grown up that that throne stood on no very firm footing. A great discontent was boiling and seething among the people, in order to repress which all the police and censorship regulations were made more stringent, and the only consequence of this was greater discontent. The only thing, said certain people, which could give renewed splendor and security to the dynasty would be a successful campaign. It is true, there was no near prospect of this, but all mention of disarmament would be a total and complete mistake, 
for thereby the whole Bonaparte nimbus would be destroyed, which was undoubtedly founded on the heritage of glory of the first Napoleon. We had also received no very cheering answers to our inquiries on these subjects from Prussia and Austria. There people had entered on an epoch of expansion of the defensive forces. The word army began to be unfashionable, and the word disarmament fell on this like a gross discord. On the contrary, in order to obtain the blessings of peace, the defensive power must be increased. The French were not to be trusted, the Russians neither, and the Italians most certainly not. They would fall on Trieste and Trent at once, if they had the opportunity. In short, the only thing to do was to nurse the Landwehr system with all the care possible. The time is not ripe, said Frederick on our receiving communications such as these, and I must, I suppose, in reason give up the hope that I personally may be able to help in hastening the ripening of that time, or even see the fruits I long for blossoming. What I can contribute is mean enough, but from the hour that I saw that this thing, however mean, is my duty, it has, in spite of all, become the greatest thing of all to me, so I keep on. But if for the present the project of disarmament had been dropped, I had yet one comfort. There was no war in sight. The war party which existed in the court and among the people, and whose opinion was that the dynasty must be rebaptized in blood, and that another little taste of glory must be provided for the people, were obliged to renounce their plan of attack and their bewitching little campaign on the Rhine frontier. For France possessed no allies. Great drought prevailed in the country. A dearth of forage was to be anticipated. The army horses had to be sold. There was no question in agitation, the contingent of recruits had been diminished by the legislative body. In short, so Olivia declared from the tribune, the peace of Europe is assured. Assured! I rejoiced over the word. It was repeated in all the papers, and many thousands rejoiced with me. For what can there be better for the majority of men than assured peace? How much, however, that security which was announced by a statesman on June the 3rd, 1870, was worth, we now all know, and even at the time we might have known this much, that assurances of that kind from statesmen, though the public always receives them again with the same innocent trust, really contain no guarantee, literally none. The European situation shows no question in agitation, therefore peace is secure. What feeble logic! Questions may come into agitation any moment. It is not till we have prepared some means against such a contingency, other than war, that we can ever be secure against war. End of section 69